Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're conquering the big question, what the heck should I eat? There are so many diets we hear the amazing benefits of, raw, vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, and more, that we easily can be left scratching our heads and maybe rubbing our bellies wondering, how do I know what I should be eating? We'll be covering why there are so many popular diets, why these diets all seem to conflict with each other, how there can be so many different beneficial diets with evidence to support them all, what all these diets have in common, the healthiest diet of all, and we'll share how to know what you should be eating. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us once again. I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author of Undiet and the Undiet Cookbook, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, where we offer a 14-week certification program in culinary nutrition. Joining me as always is Josh Gatalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. What to eat is a big and important topic, and with many of the areas we've taken a deep dive into this season, it's actually much simpler than it seems. We all know someone who has started a new diet, whether it be vegan at one end of the spectrum or paleo at the other, and have experienced dramatic health benefits. To add to the mix, there's also hundreds of health experts who all seem to be battling it out over whether we should be eating a low-fat plant-based diet or a high-fat diet that includes animal-derived foods. Add to the mix the fact that there is reliable and valid evidence that can support basically every single diet under the sun. A testament to the fact that there are dozens of diets under the sun that are quote, hot right now, I went over to Amazon to have a look at what the top 10 books were in the health and nutrition field. And the number one was The Plant Paradox by Stephen Gundry, which is about a lectin-free diet. There was The Whole 30, which is basically a paleo plan. There was a ton of books on keto, and that is really about a very, very high-fat diet. So basically the complete opposite of the next one, which was about the 10-day green smoothie cleanse. I like to think I invented the green smoothie cleanse with my three-day program back in 2009. But I would back you up on that. Thank you. And then there was the medical mediums, quote, life-changing foods, which is uh, one that I've written about. The, that's where the celery juice craze originated from. And this is an extremely low or fat-free diet where you're basically just eating vegetables and fruits. Now, what we can appreciate is that there's lots of diets out there. They work for some people. They don't work for others. But we have to find something that's right for us. Yes. Right? And so you go and you look at, you know, I want to feel better. And you go and you look and you see this list of books and you know someone who's done them or maybe you've seen it on Instagram or something. You follow an influencer in quotes. So how is it that so many people can be having so much benefit from such a variety of different and I will call them, because in a lot of the cases, these are quite extreme diets. Mm -hmm. Well, before I actually get into the benefit, I just want to mention something quickly that I have a lot of clients that come in and are just so confused. 
yeah. about what to eat because there's so much information out there. Like back in the day, there wasn't as much information out there. There was like the diet of the of the time. But now there's so much going on and there's so much access to this information that people are having trouble choosing between a whole bunch of seemingly healthy diets. And that's why we're doing this episode. Exactly. And just another thing to preempt this is that I could choose any food, you know, you name it, and I can give you a reason why it might be unhealthy. Right. So that gets... For a specific person. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we are all biochemically different. We all have a different chemical soup in our body. We all need different things. We thrive on different inputs that you know, give us optimal health. We see this around the world. The human is incredibly adaptable. We have humans living in the far north here in Canada. We have the Inuit that are consuming muktuk and blubber and seal and bear in their indigenous diet. Unfortunately, it's kind of moved from there a little bit, but that's another story for another day. We have the Nenets that live in northern Arctic Russia, which eat reindeer meat, which is both raw and frozen, and they even drink blood and consume blood. Uh, they also consume fish, salmon, and cranberries in a short part of the season when they come up. And then we have the Maasai that live, you know, in hot East Africa, and they're consuming, while well, their indigenous diet is raw milk and raw meat and raw blood and raw butter which is actually a really important infant food. And only recently, they've kind of moved more towards farming. But again, another discussion for another day. So we have people all over the world thriving on their indigenous diets. Right. And what we've also seen, and a lot of this is done with the research with Weston A. Price, is that when indigenous cultures move away from their diet, they have extremely high rates of disease and diabetes is something that's become a huge problem amongst First Nations in Canada, as well as the Aboriginal communities in Australia. So one of the challenges we're left with is for a lot of us living in sort of westernized or industrialized societies, we don't have an indigenous diet. We don't know what to eat. And that's what's fed into this rise of such a massive array of dietary protocols. So let's have a quick look at some of the more popular ones. The raw diet is just that. You're basically eating, in most cases, it's completely raw plant-based foods. I think there are some sort of sects of that who will eat the raw meats. Then we have vegan, which is also considered more of a lifestyle choice. So nothing derived from animals in their life, and that might include a wool sweater or beeswax in their lip balm. Then there's vegetarian, which is a high plant-based diet, but could also include some fish in some cases or some eggs or some dairy. And I should mention that just because it carries the label of vegan or vegetarian, and we talked about this, like French fries can be vegan. There's these processed meat burgers, quote, meat burgers, fake meat burgers that are vegan, but incredibly processed and just a junk food. Then we have the whole food plant-based. Some people just refer to it as WFPB, which is a, I think of as a bit of a healthier version than the typical standard vegan, which could include processed food. So the whole food plant-based is unprocessed, but vegan diet in the, in most cases, some people have whole food plant-based, and then incorporate small amounts of animal-derived foods. We've got the lectin-free diet we talked about. There's paleo, where it's very, very low on grains and starchy carbohydrates, beans, 
some of some of the starchier vegetables, and then much higher on animal derived foods, and then the non starchy vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, greens, that kind of thing. And then finally, at the end of the spectrum, we've got the keto. So the ketogenic diet, which is now shifting your body into using fat as the primary fuel source. So it's very, very low in carbohydrates, moderate amounts of protein. And these are all, all the rage. Like, so I don't feel like there's, I I think there is a shift more towards a more paleo style of eating than we've seen, say, 10 years ago when vegan was more popular and more widely adopted and used. And it's just interesting to watch from the outside while also being a nutritionist is seeing the shift in mainstream culture and the questions we're asked in the diets that people are coming to us knowing about already. And so the real question is, how is it possible that all of these diets are the right diet? And what can we do about it? How do we determine what we should be eating? Right. What's interesting is if you look at a bell curve of the population, there's, you know, most people fall in the middle and then we have the outliers on either side. So, you know, we get these diets coming into our world. You know, you get an author writing about a specific diet for whatever reason. Each one has their own story. And then lots of people buy the book and lots of people try the diet. And what I've found is that you might get about 10% of people that do really well on the diet. Like, you know, it's life-changing for them. It's so life-changing that they want to write about it and give testimonials and write to the author, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have about 10% that may actually do worse on the diet. But then we have about 80% in the middle on many of these diets that maybe see a little bit of benefit. Maybe they feel a little bit better. Like the, the changes aren't that dramatic. Now, Megan, who do you think the authors hear from the most and post about the most? Well, as an author, you're going to hear from both of those 10% groups. You're going to hear from people who get really poor results, although I didn't because I don't have an extreme diet. But you do hear and you obviously want to cherish the ones that have those extreme successes and that that is who you will highlight. Exactly. And that's not necessarily the fault of the author. Like I think they're just doing their job saying, hey, this is the diet I recommend and it's doing really well for a lot of people. But it filters a lot of the information to those of you out there that might not be nutritionists or working in the healthcare sector and understand how to properly evaluate these diets. Here's the thing that we all have to know, and this is going to simplify everything right now. If you are eating the standard American diet and then suddenly switch to a raw diet, a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, a whole foods, plant-based diet, lectin-free, paleo, keto, whatever else is out there, and in following that in a healthful way, you are going to be eliminating processed foods or just shifting your body's usual fuel source, you will feel better. If you get rid of the fast food and the junk that lines the aisles of the supermarket, no matter which dietary protocol you choose, you're going to feel a difference. And that's why primarily when people shift to any of these diets from a standard way of eating, or even if you've been vegan for a long time and then you shift to paleo, or if you've been paleo a long time and you want to shift to maybe a raw diet for the summer, you might feel a dramatic change in how you feel. In most cases, and oftentimes, I I guess I shouldn't say most cases, often you feel a positive shift because you're just changing things up. There can be a time where you actually feel more sluggish or, or you don't get that positive uplift. However, 
you're getting rid of the processed foods. And if you're reading one of these dietary plans, oftentimes, especially in the natural or functional nutrition or culinary nutrition world, they're also going to be stressing organic. So now you're getting rid of processed foods and a ton of chemical intake. That's why all of these diets are effective. Now, just because they're effective today, they may not be effective for you forever. Now, I can use myself as a prime example. I had a whole foods diet when I was healing from Crohn's. I switched to more of a vegan diet around nutrition school, and then it was no longer serving me. I felt great for a long time. Everything was working well in my body, and then slowly things started to break down. I was carrying extra weight. I got a bunch of cavities in my teeth, and that was when I transitioned to introducing meat foods or animal-based foods back into the diet. So what's really, really important to remember is that These diets that heal you, the diet that makes you feel amazing, may not be the diet that sustains you ongoing for the rest of your life because we're always changing. Absolutely. And just to give a good example of that, like imagine a female who's 18 to 25 years old and they're an athlete. You know, their diet's going to look one way. And then they move into like their 30s, for example, and maybe they have a child and now they're pregnant and their diet's going to look very different in that situation. And then they're lactating, right? They're breastfeeding. And now they're kind of, I know they, people say it's eating for two, but it's about eating for 1.3 because you don't need double the calories. You need about 1.3 of the calories. So now they're eating a little bit different for lactation. And then they're, you know, maybe, experiencing a, a time in their life where they're at a desk cubicle all, all day. They used to be an athlete. Now they're at a desk cubicle working the nine to five and their diet's going to need to change a little bit there, you know, a little bit less calories, less carbs, not as much of that fast burning fuel. And then maybe they move into menopause. And now this is a whole other can of worms, you know, maybe they want to consume a little bit more of those phytoestrogens or, you know, maybe they want to reduce their caloric intake a little bit, you know? So it's stuff that's always evolving and we constantly have to regroup and figure out, you know, what we need for today. I think I've heard you say in one of your lectures that if our diet didn't evolve, we'd all still be breastfeeding. (laughs) That's really smart. Did you forget you used to say that? Yeah, I'll have to use that one again. But it's true. So that diet needs to continue to evolve. When people tattoo their dietary choice onto their body, oh, you're, you're just setting yourself up for a challenge. And what's crazy is that when it, it's really hard when you're in the public domain advocating for a certain diet and suddenly you realize it's no longer serving you and you've written books about it. And this has happened where you suddenly have to basically have a coming out saying, I no longer eat this way and this is why. And there's also a lot of people in the health field who are no longer eating the way that they continue to advocate because their livelihood depends on it. And what you really need to do, everyone who's listening, is tune in to your own health and well-being. And this is something that I advocate for in, in my work in Undiet, as well as with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, that every diet, every dietary philosophy, every value is welcome. We are inclusive of everyone. And then my objective is to educate on how you determine the best diet for yourself at that stage in your life and also to help guide others because it will forever change. And the greatest harm to our planet, to our mental, emotional well-being, to the happiness of a family, to a community, is a human being out of balance. And that is why we strive to continuously evolve our diet so that we can maintain our optimal health and fulfill on our optimal potential. And that means that you cannot be too attached to the dietary label 
that you give yourself during a certain stage of your life. Now, I'm a big fan of personal experimentation and using yourself as a guinea pig. So a wonderful experiment people could do if they wish to take this on is do one month of veganism, like strict veganism, and then do one month of strict paleo and just see how you feel. Mm-hmm. You know, one might not be right, one might not be wrong, but it's an interesting exploration into just how your body feels. And I think a month is a good span of time to really understand, first of all, how what it is like to follow those types of diets. And then secondly, to see what the effect is in your body. Now, there's really different diets for specific needs as well. And we're going to dive more into how to fine tune the diet. You know, so we want to first look at a diet for general health and well-being, you know, what's going to sustain us? What's going to keep us healthy? What's going to give us the calories we need and the nutrients we need in order to run this beautiful thing called the human body? After that, we want to maybe fine-tune a little bit with what we're eating by starting to explore a world called functional therapeutic foods. And this is what I do with my clients a lot. We start with a foundational diet usually something that's going to help serve their specific condition. Um, And I can give you a few examples. So, you know, if someone uh, is dealing with bacterial overgrowth, dysbiosis, you know, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, for example, we move more towards a paleo type diet so we can be feeding those bacteria less. If someone has IBS, we maybe move into a FODMAPS type diet. If someone has Crohn's or colitis, we maybe explore a specific carbohydrate diet. So those are a few examples of the foundational diet, but then we look at functional foods. And we've already spoken a lot about these in in previous podcasts, but these are specific foods that are going to serve their specific condition, right? So, you know, someone with heart disease uh, might want to consume garlic at a therapeutic dose because it has so many amazing benefits, anti-clotting, vasodilation, so many good things. Uh, And then we maybe look at specific diets and specific disciplines to actually treat specific illnesses or even diagnoses. I want to stop you right there and just go back to a few things you said, because we talked about diets for general health and well-being. And if you're listening, being like, well, that's what I want to know, because you just talked about all these different diets. So how do I know what I need to eat for general health and well-being? And that's where you go back to the very basic principles of optimally locally grown, seasonal, unprocessed foods, where all that processing happens in your kitchen. So if you can just buy what's at the local market, buy what's in season where you live, do as much of that processing in your own home kitchen. That is what we consider a diet for general health and well-being. And then you may tweak, like Josh said, you do the vegan experiment or the paleo experiment, and you might find that during times of the year, you feel better and do better eating more plant-based foods. And maybe during the winter months, you want more slower cooked stews and chilies and that kind of food that sort of inherently in our DNA was what we ate for more of a hibernation type setting, which here in Canada is what winter often feels like. And that's the beauty of this. You know, if you follow what Megan was just talking about with the the whole foods, um, you're crushing it 95%, right? You know, it's sort of the 5% where you might want to tweak things a little bit, play around with the macronutrients, bring in some of those therapeutic foods if you're maybe dealing with a, a more serious imbalance. Right. And that's where you talk about those therapeutic diets like FODMAPs and specific carbohydrates. So most people will eliminate 
a lot of their health challenges just by getting to the whole foods diet without having to worry about those technicalities. And that's really what we want to stress here is that there are so many diets out there. There's the general healing and health and maintenance diets, and then there's those specific ones. But like Josh said, 95% of it, if you just start eating real food, you made at home, you know the oils you're using, you know that there's not a ton of sugar going into everything, you know you're not using white iodized table salt, you're going to be getting a massive benefit. And then the details, all of that kind of just takes care of itself. You don't need to stress the small stuff. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation and it's helping you to feel more confident in knowing what the heck to eat. I want to take a quick break here to introduce you to Julie Walton. She's a 2018 culinary nutrition expert graduate. Julie already had a background in nutrition and fitness. And while I'll let her tell you how she's applying her culinary nutrition training into her amazing business. Hi, my name is Julie Walton, and I am a 2018 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. I loved this program. I am a certified exercise physiologist with an undergraduate in kinesiology, and I'm also a holistic nutritionist. This was by far the best continuing education program I have done, and it is so applicable to my career. It answers all of the questions clients and others ask me on a regular basis. It is so practical and I found myself challenged, but very supported throughout the program. I would highly recommend this to anyone wanting to further their education in culinary skills with an emphasis on real and healthful foods. Megan backs everything up with research, which I love, and delivers it with her amazing personality. It was money very well spent. It also gave me the courage to open up my own company, Julie Walton Health, where I get to combine my nutrition and physiology experience and work for myself, which I love. Julie is a great example of how you can take the teachings from the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program and apply it to your existing business. Of course, I love the bit where she says, our program is the best program ever. At least I think that's what I heard. You can learn more about Julie and her amazing work at juliewalton.ca. And we have all the links over on culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just select this episode. The Academy of Culinary Nutrition and our Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is inclusive of all dietary styles. We aim to educate and share information that helps you gain confidence and understand how to determine the best way of eating for yourselves, and of course, how to share this knowledge with others. We are teaching the teachers, whether that means for your own business or in your own home kitchen. Please visit culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more. We run the program just once a year and we start in September. So time is running out and we would love for you to join us. Now let's get back to our conversation answering the question, what the heck should I eat? What's interesting when it comes to a lot of these diets is that they become popular and then, you know, there's podcasts on it and all of the good information about them and benefits is sort of what's being presented to the population, right? It's, it's kind of all the bad stuff's being filtered. And then everyone starts trying this because they think it's going to help them. So the ketogenic diet was, in, was made popular, well, it was started back in the 30s, I think, to treat children with epilepsy. Was it in the 1930s? Yeah, was- and this is a great example of this. Yes, and now it's had a resurgence and it's being used very commonly now for endurance athletes and bodybuilding and training and people are 
proclaiming amazing physical health benefits, get leaning up and building muscle, amazing mental health, acuity, agility, agility, agility. I mean, I need to be on a keto diet, mental agility. And that's who we hear about. We don't hear a lot of people said, oh, I did keto and like I got depressed because I wasn't getting the right fuel to my brain. So one example with the keto diet is that there's been so many interviews and information coming out on its utility and use for cancer. And it's it's quite impressive, actually. Uh, what we know now for the ketogenic diet is it's tremendous for treating certain types of brain cancers like glioblastoma. But what people don't know and what gets a little bit filtered out is it's not so good for other types of cancers like kidney cancer. It's actually shown to be detrimental for people with kidney cancer. So again, people are listening to these interviews and, and seeing, oh, ketogenic, great for cancer. And then they're going and using it in all sorts of different scenarios. And that's where some of the danger lies. What we need to note here is that people who use the ketogenic diet, let's say to heal or recover from glioblastoma, brain cancer, may not or, or rather do not need to and probably shouldn't be on the ketogenic diet their entire life. They may need to do what you might call, I don't know if you'd call it a keto cleanse, you may need to do spurts of it intermittently. But there's very few people who would thrive on going till the end of their days on a strictly ketogenic diet. Right. And again, that's something that when someone is going through this type of situation, this health crisis, they will work with their primary healthcare practitioner to determine how long they need to be on it, how long they need that therapeutic effect, and whether they do need to stay on it lifelong or if they can veer off of it a little bit. I say this several times through the course of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. I've said it probably, I think I've already said it once in this episode, but remember guys, the diet that heals you may not be the diet that sustains your health ongoing. So remember that it is a constant evolution. It's a constant check-in with yourself. It could be a constant or ongoing or periodic check of your blood work because that will tell you what's going on in your body. And sometimes best of all is, is how you actually feel when you wake up in the morning, after you eat, going to bed at night. Let's hone in here on one specific diet that's been shown to be beneficial for heart disease, for example, and, and other degenerative diseases over the years. You know, the vegan diet has been given a lot of support in terms of how healthy it is. And a huge part of that, obviously, is the amount of vegetables people are eating in that diet, right? So sometimes we're arguing about the wrong aspect of the diet. There are some key diets out there that are touted by medical doctors and, you know, other authors. And uh, lots of studies. Yeah, uh, that are vegan-based, yes. for example. Like the China study was one that came out and just like turned a lot of people's, you know, thinking around and a couple documentaries that have come out as well. But we have to look at the diet and really figure out what is the part of the diet that's so healthful, that's so uh, beneficial for heart disease, for example, because, you know, there's been a lot in, in relation to heart disease. And is it the macronutrients? Is it like the, the meat and the protein that's really causing the harm? Or is it the fact that a lot of these diets have a lack of vegetables? Right. So for example, let me just give you a picture of a plate. Okay. Okay. You have a big salad on yep. that plate, maybe some roasted vegetables, and then you have maybe some quinoa with beans in it as your protein source. This is the vegan version. Yes. And that's your meal. Yes. Right? Versus you have another plate, picture this, 
a big salad, your roasted vegetables, and you have, you know, a few strips of organic grass-fed steak. Or you can have a plate that is a fake cheese with white bread grilled sandwich and french fries with ketchup, which also is a vegan meal, however, has absolutely no nutritional value. Yeah. Or you could have another paleo plate that is like a 16-ounce steak with some white potatoes and gravy. Yes, and some sour cream, and it's a feedlot cow. So as you can see, there's, through there's, with antibiotics. Should I stop now? <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, there's many versions of of all the disciplines. And when we look at these studies, they're not necessarily taking all this into account. You know, like one of the most common questions I get from my clients is, isn't, you know, if you're on the paleo diet or the keto diet, isn't eating all that meat really bad? Right. But I think a lot of the times when they're looking at those types of high meat diets, it's like the standard American diet. It's people eating poor quality meat coupled with high sugar foods, which have a synergistically negative effect in the gut and in the body through the context of maybe having a pop with it and being in a rush and, you know, not really having the meal in, in the right context. Right. So you could be eating it in a stressful environment, not fully digesting it and having those an increase in inflammatory compounds as a direct result. Absolutely. Here's a little, a little example slash experiment. So I as I mentioned, was was vegan for a very long time. I never used the title because labels are for tin cans. Recently, I've been wearing a 24-hour glucose monitor. And it's been just an experiment to see how different meals affect my blood sugar levels. And I do now eat a predominantly, I mean, in the summer, it's just a lot of vegetables and a lot of salads and small amounts of animal-based protein. But over the last two weeks, I had one meal that was what I would have considered a typical healthy vegan meal. It was black rice, tons of vegetables, a little bit of sprouted tofu, cooked in some, I think it was avocado oil. I had ginger and lots of spices and it spiked my blood sugar, the highest it's been in the last two weeks. And then it took a long time for it to recover itself, for it to sort of restabilize. Most meals that I'm eating that are high vegetable with small amounts of animal protein, I stay within my optimal range. So this one meal spiked it. And so if we look at on a personal level, what are our health objectives? And we know that though, you know, in the studies and the research, plant-based and vegetable-based diets do better in the research and have better outcomes. What is the long-term effect and what is the root cause of the original problem we're trying to resolve? So if I'm trying to resolve hormonal imbalance, let's say, or looking at getting more fit, let's say, those blood sugar spikes and drops and being in that roller coaster is going to have a negative long-term effect on my health objectives. Do you like your brain, Megan? I do like my brain. I think it works really well 92% of the time now that I'm sleeping again. <laughs> Listen to episode nine. Well, I think another thing you might be interested in benefiting from with balancing blood sugar is preventing brain shrinkage. Because as... nobody, because nobody likes shrinkage of any kind? No, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back on track here. Enough about shrinkage. What were you going to say? As blood sugar increases and also a marker in the blood for blood sugar over the long term called hemoglobin A1C, brain shrinkage increases. So, you know, it's not always these, you know, immediate symptoms or acute symptoms that we're trying to manage. It's like also long term health as well. 
when you have that high blood sugar, which we saw when you were on that specific diet, right? That vegan diet or that vegan meal that you had, the sugars can damage the proteins in our blood and actually damage tissues around the body. And that's why it's so dangerous for diabetics to have high blood sugar, right? Yeah. It starts to damage their tissues and that leads to nerve damage and eventually di diabetic neuropathies and problems with their eyes and, you know, in very severe cases, amputation. So looking back at some of the root causes of these issues years before it becomes a problem, looking at the blood sugar, we're evaluating and you're evaluating with this little personal experiment, you know, what's happening at that physiological micro level on a daily basis. Right. And it can also explain why I felt amazing when I first shifted to a vegan diet and it worked for me for a couple of years and then slowly stopped working because there's some things that you feel the immediate benefit or negative effect from. And there's some things that over time, these patterns develop in your body and then you slowly start to experience a more negative outcome from it. And this isn't to say that, you know, the vegan diets for nobody and it, you know, we know lots of people who are on it and it serves them and has served them for a long period of time. But it, again, like we've been saying all along, it always comes back to the individual, what your current needs are, what your long-term needs are, and how we can continuously be open to evolving to best suit our health objectives. Now, I'd like to shift a little bit. You know, the original word diet, do you know what it actually means? Diete is what you always say to me, but now I can't remember what yes. Greek for. It's it's a way of life, Latin for Latin. way of life. So, you know, the, the word diet has completely morphed and changed, but it really is this holistic thing. And I love what you've done. You've you've written about this extensively, uh, and we. Oh, have, I thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And we have lots of conversations about this. So going beyond the food, like just eating it, get beyond what your else, plate. What else do we need to consider? And this is so 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 important. It's whether your diet is actually sustainable. And one of the things that. That, well, not even the one of the things, but what I take into account when we are making our food choices is whether it's personally sustainable. So is this something that I can eat today, tomorrow, the next day, and still enjoy my life, still socialize, still be part of the community, still have that engagement? And is it sustainable environmentally? One of the things that kept sticking in my head when I was on a more plant-based diet was the fact that it was taking more calories to get my food to me than I was actually getting consuming it. And so if the core of my calories were from avocados and olives and olive oil and coconut and coconut products, that to me is not a sustainable way to eat ongoing. Like a carbon footprint. Like the carb, yes, the, food. the yeah. carbon footprint of the food. Mm. And that for me personally, with my values, and we all have our own set of values and guidelines, and there's more hypocrisy in dietary choices than I think any other element of our society. You have to do what makes sense for you, your health, your family, your budget, where you live in the world. And that to me is as important as whether this is the healthiest diet on the planet, because I don't want to be the healthiest person on the planet and the planet's falling apart. I want all of us to be living optimally on a healthy planet with healthy neighbors and friends and being able to communicate and be part of a community and socialize and dine out once in a while and have people over and be able to eat at other people's homes. And all of that really factors in. And I feel really proud of the journey that I've been on and that we've been on together, you know, since the last 15 years as our diets have evolved to be at a place where we know what to eat. 
We shop for our food. We make most of what we eat from scratch, but also have a freedom and a bit of a leniency that we can dine out. And even when we do, we have our guidelines. We still stick to a strictly gluten-free diet and, and we have those guidelines and we eat at restaurants that are farm to table and have a bit of those ethics as part of their paradigm, but that we we aren't stuck into something that feels in the least bit limiting. Yeah. And that's, I think, what the trap that a lot of people fall into. And you mentioned this before, that it becomes their identity, a lot of these diets. It becomes their identity and it becomes incredibly isolating. Mm. So some of the guidelines we want to offer, because I mean, short of reading the Undiet Cookbook and something I did very specifically, and this isn't intended to be a plug, but because I strongly believe that there is no one diet for every human being on the planet. And that it is not up to me to tell anybody that I've, especially people I've never met in my life or laid eyes on, because you can often see people's health and their skin and their eyes. I have no authority to tell everybody in, on the planet what they should be eating for their optimal health. We have to decide that for ourselves. And so one of the things I did in the Undiet Cookbook was that every recipe in that book has a protein-powered, grain-free option. It's got a nut-free option. It's got a soy-free option. Because I really believe so strongly that we are responsible for empowering ourselves with information and not just going blindly by what the experts say, not by what I say, what Josh says, what the books tell us, but what we're experiencing in our body and in our life to ensure that we are eating the optimal diet that is sustainable, however you want to qualify what sustainable actually means. So one of the first guidelines I give is where do you live? And so based on where you live, that will affect what's available seasonally and the types of foods you want to eat based on the season that you're living in. We eat differently in the winter than we do in the summer. One of the things Megan and I love about traveling, uh, especially to different climates, is tasting the local foods as yes. well. Like one of Megan's favorite foods are mangosteens, which, we, which are abundant in places like Hawaii. Yeah, in Bali, we ate them. Yeah. We also ate in Hawaii, look, lakuma, which they called egg fruit, which I'm glad that's not a local food here because I thought it was so gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of good, like the first bite. And then the yeah. second bite, you're like, okay, this isn't as good. And then the third bite, you're like, okay, I've had enough. Like as as you guys listening probably know, like we, we put a lot of love and effort into our food and we actually choose where we travel and what we do based on farmer's markets. And one of the first things we do anywhere, even here in Toronto, when we go to the farmer's market, we do a walk around, see what is available that week. And whatever is new, that's what we're going to get. And we do the same thing when we travel. And it's such a beautiful way to explore new foods and get different nutrients into the body, which brings us to our next guideline, which is what are the nutrients you need in your body? Right. So, you know, a simple way to, to cover this point is just to make sure you have a really varied diet, right? And when you eat from the beautiful offerings of Mother Nature, you get um, all the different nutrients that you that you might need. What a lot of people do is they go to the grocery store, they buy the same five to eight vegetables every trip and just prepare them in different ways. So I always advise to buy a new vegetable every week, get something you didn't buy the week before and continually change that up so you are getting that variety. Then if you notice you're getting a cold frequently or you know, you're feeling run down or things just aren't right, then you know you need to change it up and maybe get some blood work, get your baseline set and then you can sort of fine tune or tweak what you, what you need. Speaking of blood work and testing, I actually had one client recently and we looked at her micronutrient tests over about 5 years. 
And she had changed from a sort of like a paleo whole foods plant-based diet, plant-based meaning lots of plants, not necessarily no meat, but a paleo style diet. And she switched to veganism because she wasn't feeling that well as much on meat anymore. And she saw one of those documentaries. And we actually saw over those years her micronutrients get more and more deficient, Hmm. right? So for this individual, she was benefiting quite a bit from eating uh, the meat for some of those nutrients. And a lot of those nutrients that were lacking and low were ones that you can only find from meat, like like vitamin A and B12, for example. Right. So if you can do the vegan diet healthfully, you just need to be really mindful. It's, It's harder to maintain optimal health in most cases. However, it's also hard to maintain optimal health eating crappy meat. So it it all requires a little bit of thought. So our next guideline takes into account your specific needs, perhaps if you're dealing with a health condition. So this is, you know, choosing the right diet for your specific possible imbalance. Sometimes this is obvious. Sometimes it's not that obvious. If you need help with that, you want to find a good healthcare practitioner that can help you with that. I gave you a few examples earlier on, but this can help uh, restore health and restore those imbalances in a much quicker way because we eat three times a day. So if that's a healing diet for our specific needs, we're going to be moving closer to health. And the final one, and and I hope you can actually picture this as like an upside down triangle where the where do you live and your seasonal diet is like at the the widest part, the top part of the triangle. Then you go down to your specific nutrient needs. You go lower if you're dealing with a specific health concern. And that's where you start to get really into the specifics. And the final point is, can you maintain this way of eating? And do you need to? Or is this a short-term acute healing period in your life, and then you find that sustainable, long-term, healthy way of eating and living. Right. And that's a great point because some clients sometimes say to me, hey, Josh, do I have to do this diet the rest of my life? (laughs) And when I get that question, it's an immediate red flag that, okay, I got to start thinking about how we're going to transition them. I got to start thinking seriously about how long they need to be on it to address their specific concern. And it gives me a deep understanding into that they need to find something more sustainable or else nothing's going to work and they're going to fall right off. And the most important part of all of this is make it delicious. Make it delicious? Come on, it's got to taste good. That's such an important thing. And though when you switch from, say, a standard diet or you're transitioning away from things like sugar, let's say, it does take some time, but your taste buds absolutely adjust. And you don't believe this until you experience it yourself. That now if we eat something, I can't eat any baked goods, even they're gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, vegan, from any local bakeries. To me, they all just have way too much sugar in them. I can't, I can't take that taste. Mm -hmm. So make it delicious and make it simple. When you're starting with really good food, it's not hard to make the meal taste delicious. And if you can really focus on being on that foundation of whole, unprocessed foods that are consciously sourced, whether you're choosing a raw diet, vegan diet, macrobiotic, paleo, keto, whatever it is, the quality of your food really, really matters. And we want to make it delicious and simple. So pay attention to where you live, your nutrient needs, if you have to get really specific for a health condition, and then can you maintain it? And those are the guidelines we offer so that you can answer the question, what What the the heck heck should I eat? eat?
We hope this episode has helped you. I think that was actually the first time we, I was going to close up, but I think that's the first time we actually successfully coordinated a a statement. We're moving in the right direction. (laughs) I'm sorry there was no jingle in this episode, but you got that. So we hope this episode has helped you to be clear about what you should be eating, ultimately reducing the stress and worry about it all. And if you're listening to this podcast, it means you've already started on the right path by asking questions and seeking answers. So give yourself a pat on the back. We also have some more resources to support your learning over on culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. If you want to take all of your learning deeper and discover how to optimally feed yourself and nourish your family, then join us for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. We are gearing up for our September term and we'd love to have you join us. The program is 14 weeks from start to finish. You're assigned a dedicated program coach and all of our students go through the program together to keep each other accountable. We have an incredible success rate, not just with our students completing the program, but in the amazing work our graduates are now doing. Learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. Once you become a culinary nutrition expert, you'll never again have to ask, what the heck should I eat? You'll know the answers. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. So start that experimentation with your own personal diet. Take what you've learned and start applying it to your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We have just one episode left in the series. And again, we thank you so much for supporting us and this show. Thank you. Have a great day.